Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Hi, Shelter in Place listeners. In yesterday's episode, that's episode 30 if you missed it, I shared with you our family's plans to move to Mexico, plans that have changed with COVID-19. Today, I have a special treat for you, a story that comes to us from Out There podcast producer, Maya Croft. It originally aired on Out There podcast back in the fall of 2017, when Maya was living and reporting in Mexico City. As I listened back to this story, I was struck by the parallels to the times we're living in now. In a way, it's a story of sheltering in place. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Shelter in Place. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy Maya's story as much as I did. I'll let Maya take it from here. Way out west, all along the Pacific coast of Mexico, there stand about 100 sensors listening to the earth. They look kind of like cell phone towers, and their job is to absorb and record every tremble and vibration. They're monitoring a tectonic battle of the wills between the North American plate and the Cocos plate, a battle that has lasted a billion years. These sensors send a constant stream of radio waves to a data center, where computers pick through the noise to find the signal. Earthquake. In seconds, they locate the epicenter and calculate the magnitude. If it's strong, they'll send a message to the thousands of loudspeakers that line the streets of Mexico City. Loudspeakers that started showing up after 1985, when a massive quake leveled the capital and killed almost 10,000 people. The noise that the loudspeakers make is the worst sound I've ever heard. This past September 19th, the sensors were listening when the Cocos Plate warped, setting off the magnitude 7.1 earthquake that you probably saw on the news. The alarm is designed to be an early warning system, to give people time to grab an emergency bag and get outside with seconds to spare. If you live in California, you know the drill, duck and cover, right? But here, the trauma from the 1985 quake still runs deep. I mean, entire apartment blocks just collapsed. So people run outside. Outside is where they feel safe. Exactly 32 years later, to the day, Mexico City was convulsing again. By the time the alarm reached the loudspeaker mounted outside my bedroom window, the shaking had already started. I was living on the fourth floor of an apartment building that, even before the earthquake, was tilting several inches to the right. Over the years, it had settled unevenly into Mexico City's squishy topsoil. We had to put five-inch blocks under two of the legs just to keep the bed level. Every time a heavy truck drove by, the building wobbled. It was like living on a waterbed. On September 19th, it felt like being on the Titanic. It's stupid the things that go through your mind in a crisis. When I realized this shaking wasn't caused by any truck, all I could think to do was put on my jeans. I wasn't thinking batteries, portable radio, bottled water, change of underwear. No. 
I was thinking about what the neighbors would think when they saw me outside, still wearing my ugliest nightshirt at one in the afternoon, the super soft one I can't bear to throw out even though it's full of holes. I heard a crash, something shattering, then another. I tried to remember earthquake protocol. Was it still right to shelter in a doorway, or was I supposed to lie next to the bed? I stood on one foot in the hall, trying and failing to shove the other one into my pant leg, while the world was probably ending all around me. I guess this is it, I thought. This is how it ends. A body half-dressed, a life half-lived. Then, after about a minute that felt like a year, the shaking stopped. I raced for the exit and found my downstairs neighbors, two elderly sisters, huddled near the door to their apartment, gripping each other with white knuckles. One of them was praying in a language I couldn't understand, not Spanish. She might have been speaking in tongues. We made our way out onto the street, where hundreds of people were gathered together in clumps. They stared down at their phones, trying to get a signal, text family and friends that they were all right. Or they looked up, at apartment buildings they were now too afraid to go back into. Over the next few days, videos passed from phone to phone. A gas line exploding. A textile factory demolished in seconds. An elementary school reduced to rubble. Hundreds of people just gone. In my old neighborhood, four buildings collapsed within blocks of each other, and there were still people trapped inside. Nobody knew how many. Official information was non-existent. Everything was coming from social media. Within a couple hours, somebody had put together a crowdsourced Google map with the locations of all the collapsed buildings, temporary shelters, hospitals, and donation centers all across the city. Someone on WhatsApp said there was a donation center nearby that needed insulin. I picked up a few doses at a nearby pharmacy and started walking. And I brought my recorder with me. It's uh, Wednesday, September 20th, around 10.30 in the morning. People are gathered here bringing water, toilet paper, medical supplies, baby food, pet food. In my old neighborhood, Colonia Roma, there's this pretty plaza with a huge fountain in the center. It's usually full of tourists taking selfies and people enjoying a leisurely lunch at one of the fancy restaurants near the roundabout. But after the quake, it became a giant collection point. Volunteers coordinated the whole operation, directing people to leave bottled water to the left, diapers to the right, medicine over there, and so on. There was an army of motorcycles, scooters, and bicyclists, too. The idea being that nimble vehicles could zip through the gridlocked streets faster to deliver people and supplies where they needed to go. I headed for the medical area, where a young man with a white coat, tired eyes, and a stethoscope around his neck took the insulin and thanked me. Thanked me. He looked like he'd been up all night helping people, but he thanked me for my five-minute trip to the pharmacy, with a sincerity in his face that put a lump in my throat. I kept walking. A few blocks from that plaza, an entire sixth-floor office building had pancaked. All that was left of Alvaro Obregón number 286 was a violent snarl of rebar and slabs of concrete two feet thick, stacked one on top of the other. Somewhere in there, almost 50 people were trapped, mostly young accountants in their 20s and 30s. 
Typically, this is a neighborhood where you would see people jogging in the morning or going to brunch or walking their dogs in one of the parks here. But today, it's a very different tone. Tents are set up in the park where another donation center has been established. Shops and restaurants are mostly closed. Nearby, whole apartment buildings dissolved into mountains of brick and debris, scattered with the artifacts of people's lives. People wheeled suitcases full of whatever they could grab from their condemned buildings. A woman walked past me on the street, silent tears streaming down her face. There doesn't seem to be a ton of organization or central authority running things it seems a little bit haphazard, but for the most part, everybody seems calm. I talked to people on the street about what they'd seen, where they were when the shaking started, how narrowly they'd escaped being trapped themselves. But one of the most powerful things I heard that day was silence. Picture a busy intersection at mid-afternoon. A bunch of makeshift tents are lined up on one side of the street where volunteers are collecting and distributing supplies for the rescuers. Hard hats, pickaxes, goggles, masks, bottled water, tamales. Then, all of a sudden, everybody raises one fist in the air, and all you hear is this. Silence. Only one thing could get so many people in one of the biggest, most bustling cities in the world to all decide to stay quiet, knowing that human lives were at stake. The silence you just heard was uh, a call from the workers. They raised their fists up, and that's a sign that means be quiet so they can hear the cries of people that might still be trapped in the rubble. So everybody put their fists up, and uh, quiet fell over the, the uh, crowd. I had been keeping it together, but the immensity of that moment got to me as I kept on with my tour of the scene. Here at a nearby restaurant, um, they've set up uh, tables out front with coffee and uh, water and juices and things like that. In the quake of 1985, when buildings in a neighborhood called Tlatelolco came crumbling down, help was excruciatingly slow to arrive. One group of neighbors decided they couldn't wait for the government any longer, and they went in and started digging people out of the rubble themselves. These were just normal people, risking their lives, not government employees who were paid to do this. Thirty years later, these same men and women, some in their 70s now, have evolved into an elite search and rescue team that's helped disaster victims around the world. They've developed a technique for tunneling into collapsed buildings to find survivors. They call themselves the topos, the Spanish word for mole, and they're all civilian volunteers, not paid a dime. One guy told me that topos set the example for Mexico. They were the reason he was out here volunteering, in the rain, at night, on no sleep, to do whatever might be necessary to help save a life or just make things a little bit more comfortable for those who'd lost everything. And there were thousands of people like him, like the topos, Anonymous somebodies coming together to help the cause. Some of them cleared rubble one bucketful at a time. Others made hundreds of sandwiches for exhausted rescuers. 
Others offered massages and Reiki therapy, everybody doing whatever little they could. It seemed to me like the vast majority of the disaster response was being done by volunteers. Not the government, not the military, not the police. Just people showing up for other people. Mexicans showing up for Mexicans. If this had happened in the U.S., I think I would have waited for someone in charge to tell me where to go and what to do. But here, it's like everybody knows that nobody is really in charge, so they just do it themselves. At times, this was inspiring, like when a male volunteer who'd had both legs amputated showed up for duty on the rescue brigades, ready to help. Or the little boy who was turned away for being too small to work. Instead, he wore a sign that read, Free hugs. Want one? It's moving, right? But let's not forget that in many cases, there's no other option. These were people who were just used to their government not taking care of them. Almost two weeks after the earthquake, rescue operations continued at Alvaro Obregón 286, that office building with all those people trapped inside. There was a sickly, sweet smell in the air, the smell of death. And volunteers were still asking the public to donate supplies. But this time, it wasn't just diapers and bottled water. It was urgently needed, five 16-inch diamond blades for concrete saws. I can't believe people's lives depend on volunteers crowdsourcing tools on social media, one concerned citizen tweeted. It had been two weeks, and family members were still waiting on any news about their loved ones trapped inside, still sleeping in the street under tarps that barely kept out the torrential rain that fell every night. I remember thinking, really? The government can't get these people a cot? A journalist from Telemundo even went on the air to offer President Enrique Peña Nieto driving directions to the site from the presidential mansion just a couple miles away. Like maybe he just forgot how to get there. He never showed. There's nothing like an earthquake to make you feel small. Mother Nature sighs, shrugs off a kink in her neck, and whole cities are changed forever. The September 19th earthquake killed 369 people, nearly half of those in Mexico City alone. It was the deadliest earthquake to hit Mexico in a generation, killing three times more people than California's last two major quakes, Loma Prieta and Northridge, combined. The day after the earthquake, I saw a man arrive to one of the spots where an apartment house had come down. He must have been in his 70s. His clothes were shabby, and in his hands he held some old tools. A rusty wrench, some kind of crowbar. He waited patiently behind the police tape to find out how he could help. I couldn't get over that image. An old man with old hand tools. How inadequate it seemed in the face of all the wreckage. And yet, that's exactly how Mexico would get out of this one tiny bit at a time. People relying on other people, because we all share the same humanity, the same responsibility. It's true, natural disasters can make you feel small, but this one made me feel something else too. It made me feel part of something bigger, some great 
invisible tapestry that connects us all. I wouldn't wish a disaster like this on anyone, but if there's a silver lining to these kinds of things, it's that shared hardship can bring out the best in people. It can help us break out of our bubble of entitlement and find compassion. And when we tap into that compassion, even the smallest gestures can move mountains. enjoyed today's episode, which came to us from Out There, an award-winning podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. Out There was launched in 2015 after host Willa Belden quit her job at Wyoming's NPR station and through-hiked the Colorado Trail. I've been enjoying listening to their feed, which includes stories of running and rock climbing and mountain biking and so much more. It's a podcast for people who enjoy nature and like to think big. You can find episodes at outtherepodcast.com or wherever you listen. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, I would love it if you could rate it and review it wherever you listen, share it with a friend, and subscribe. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. Even in these tough times, this family business has stepped up to be the first sponsor of Shelter in Place. When you order wine from brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code SHELTER. If you order six or more bottles from Brick and Mortar, you'll also get free shipping and overnight shipping in California. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. As always, you can find links to the things I mentioned in each episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.